Okay, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Hamad Kalaji. I'm an AWS community builder and software developer at Zero and One. Today, I'm I'm with Sean. Sean works as a head of developer relations at Skyflow. Sean, would you like to introduce yourself more? Hi there. My name is uh, Sean Faulkner. I'm head of developer relations at Skyflow. Uh, I previously held roles at Google, where I built and led developer relations teams, and I've been a co-founder at a technology company as well. And have uh, spent a little bit of time in uh, academics uh, as well. So I've, I've kind of spanned the, the the spectrum of different technology jobs that you could have over my career. That's cool. So you currently work as a head of relations at Skyflow. So what I've seen actually with Skyflow provides a data privacy fault in an API. Would you like to talk more about what Skyflow provides and why I would consider it in future projects or any of that? Sure. So as you mentioned, Skyflow, you know, in the, the sort of short form or pitch of it is a data privacy vault delivered as an API. And essentially with our APIs, companies can solve privacy, data security, data compliance, data residency, and easily use sensitive customer PII, PCI, or PHI without essentially breaking privacy. So for your listeners or anybody that's you know, uh, checking this out on YouTube that have never heard of a data privacy vault, it's a technology that was first pioneered by companies like Apple and Netflix. And their key insight was that their customer data, which is core to their business, is essentially different than regular application data. It's special. And since it's special, it needs to be isolated, protected, stored, and managed differently than the regular application data. So what they did was they moved their customer data into these vault architectures that they created, essentially de-scoping their existing application infrastructure and existing application databases from having the compliance and security risk of managing that data. However, you know, even though data privacy vaults, many people regard as a best-in-class solution for solving issues like data privacy, data compliance, data security, they're really hard to build. So it takes a tremendous amount of resources and expertise and time to build one. So, for example, as a uh, you know um, a uh, benchmark, Shopify talked about this in a conference last year. But it took them about three years to build their version of the data privacy vault, and with contributions from uh, close to 100 different engineers. So that's a pretty big lift for a company to take on. And most companies don't want to put their resources into building something like that. And at the end of the day, it's also not their job. You know, their job is to build a ride-sharing app or a video game or deliver groceries or whatever it is, is not to build new infrastructure that they might actually lack the expertise to do. So Skyflow took inspiration from these companies like Apple and Netflix and essentially built the data privacy vault for everyone else, delivered through a simple API or SDK. So for example, if I want to just understand it much more. So if I have an application instead of focusing on the data privacy of certain clients, I would actually put it in a separate vault and I would just let my code read from the data privacy vault directly. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that would typically happen. So if you think about, uh, take a, like an example, like uh, PCI compliance, which you need for doing like credit card transactions. Well, you can, you could go about storing credit cards yourself, and then you take on the liability of in, um, of complying with PCI. So there's a bunch of things that you need to do in order to, to comply with PCI. And most people, what they choose to do instead is use uh, like a payment processor like Stripe, where you're going to instead 
store your credit card data or your customer's credit card data directly with Stripe. And then Stripe gives you a token that is a, uh, essentially a, a non-exploitable token that represents the credit card information. And then inside your infrastructure, you don't reference the credit card number, you're just referencing the token. And then you talk to Stripe's APIs in order to carry out transactions. And Stripe is essentially giving you PCI compliance of the box and taking on the liability of um, complying with PCI and also securing your customer's credit card data. Now, with the vault, it's a similar idea. You can move all your credit card data into the vault. And then uh, the, the advantage there is that you're not locked into one you know, credit card transaction system like Stripe. You could essentially use any system that you want. But the same principle of essentially descoping your system, and instead of using uh, the actual sensitive data within your application, using these non-sensitive tokens that represent the data, you can apply to any type of customer data. So not just credit card information, but to healthcare information and to other sensitive customer data that you wouldn't want to get out there if a data breach or data leak happened, like people's home addresses and their phone numbers and their emails and so on. That's actually quite interesting. But the problem is it, it's not 100% secure because there might be a issue with, let's say, for example, if I wrote a code, even if the code that I've written can expose certain things from the vault or is there's like a mechanism, let's say like paranoia mode, where I would just say like, oh, there's like, let's say I have a breach, forbid, let's say a certain uh, API or certain information to be exposed to my code, let's say for an example. So if I created an application that uses Skyflow and mm -hmm. I had a breach, uh, my code will be interacting with your services to fetch certain data. So it's still going to fetch the data, even though the connections between my code and your services is going to be secured, but my code is going to expose certain data to the attacker. Is there like a certain way to realize, let's say if I'm compromised, to stop providing data to my code until I solve this issue? So there's a couple, I mean, there's a, cu a couple things to sort of unpack there. So one thing is that it's one thing to move your customer data into a vault and essentially isolate and protect it there, creating like a single source of truth for the sensitive data. So that's like step one. The other thing is that you need to control how different services see that information through essentially data governance. So we have APIs that allow you to create different roles and policies based on how different services need to access that data. So if you're taking an example of like a social security number that, that a lot of companies might store in the United States for doing a variety of different things, most services within your application stack, probably all of them don't actually need to see the social security number in plain text. At most, they need to see the last four digits in order for like a customer service representative to validate someone's account information. So when your uh, application service is requesting data from the vault, the only thing that they probably would be exposed to is the last four of the social security number, and that's controlled by the data governance rules. And essentially, even if someone got in, stole the API key for that service, the only thing that you're exposing is the last four digits of the social security number. So you're significantly reducing the scale of a potential data breach. And then you can, you know, the best uh, practices for um, you know, storing things like service account keys to access the vault would be to do that securely through something like a secrets manager. So you would set up like an AWS secrets manager and maybe you create like, a, you know, a Lambda function that runs on AWS that has a, and it's the only uh, service that can actually access the secrets manager. So there's a bunch of other things that you can do to really create fine grained control over what can access the vault. 
And then you're also where you know, the vault's going to be deployed in a VPC where you have a secure link to the vault. So there's a bunch of additional security mechanisms on top of this beyond just essentially isolating and protecting the data within the vault to start with. Yeah, I got I got your point onto that. But usually do like do you enforce those kind of rules on on certain developers or do you just like put them in a recommended list of hey, this is the steps that you need to do them? Because usually not every single developer is going to do this kind of setup. Usually mm -hmm. not all of them. Depends on the use case that you're trying to use the vault for. So some of them might set up, let's say, as you said, let's say like on AWS, you have IAM rules on specific, on the Lambda function, it might contact uh, a specific key from the secrets manager and get it. Some of them might resolve into using a VPC, but do you enforce those kind of rules when you deal with your developers or it's something like recommended to have or to do? Yeah, so it's a, that's a really great question. So there's a couple things there that we try to do. So one of the things that we really try to do is bake into the product what the um, uh, the best practices should be based on the use case. So since we're dealing with such um, specialized data, you know, this isn't like a database that you're just storing anything in. You're storing really specific types of data. So going back to the example of a social security number, you know, a social security number only has a few different um, situations that you're going to use a social security number. And essentially the semantics of the underlying data structure of a social security number dictate the types of use cases that someone's going to perform operations with that. You're maybe going to pass it to a third party to perform some sort of KYC or, uh, you know, credit check on somebody. And that's the only time that the social security number probably needs to be available in plain text in order to pass it securely to the third party. But for, from the application itself, it probably never needs to see the plain text value of the social security number. So what we can do with um, one of the things that we've created to make this easy is created um, uh, essentially templates for different vaults that describe these different types of use cases. For example, like PCI compliance or uh, healthcare or you know PII storage. And because the vault actually understands the semantics of these different data structures, like a social security number or how you use an email in the case of PII, we can actually bake into the product the roles and policies that make sense for those different use cases, essentially providing out of the box what the, the recommendations would be from uh, security practice best, uh, security's best practices. On top of that, we also work closely with our customers. You know, we have a solutions architect team that helps build out uh, the proof of concepts with our various customers. And then we also have a security team that does a security audit and security review before those uh, companies go live. So there's a lot of additional checks and balances. There's both human checks and then there's also taking a lot of the knowledge that exists in expertise within Skyflow. You know, there's a lot of people who've been in this space, you know, working in security, working in privacy for a really long time that have a tremendous amount of experience and taking their knowledge and baking it into the product as essentially the default experience for people. That's actually pretty cool. I, I didn't expect that there's going to be a certain audit before the application goes live. So you do like a checkup on everything on the client side before they actually go live to make yes. sure if they're actually compliant with everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we work closely with our customers to, so especially if it's a compliance situation where you need like HIPAA compliance or you need PCI compliance, we can offload a lot of those responsibilities to ourselves, but 
the client is still the controller of that information. It's their customer data. And they're the only ones that are going to have access to the vault. So there are certain responsibilities that are on their side as well in order to be compliant with various privacy laws. We can offload and uh, you know speed up that process significantly, but there's it's still like um, you know our, uh, we're still involved. You know both sides are essentially involved in that relationship and making sure the client becomes compliant. Cool. That's actually quite interesting. Uh, you're also as a head of developer relations, correct me if I'm wrong here, but your role runs around setting up strategies and programs to recruit, inspire, and enable developers and partners to solve complex problems, either it's online or offline. What's the difference between your role and other roles, let's say like a developer advocate, as an example? So I think I liked your uh, description of developer relations uh, running around. There is quite a bit of that here going on. But, you know, developer relations is really, uh, you know, it's an umbrella. You know, it's an umbrella function that includes developer marketing, developer success, developer education, and developer experience. Where essentially community is like the binding ingredient between those different pillars. And different DevRel teams have different areas of focus depending on what is important to the company, the stage of the company, but typically the commonality between those different companies and what they're focused on is, is about the developer journey with the product and engaging and building the community that actually uses the product. So as head of developer relations at Skyflow, my job consists a lot of you know, setting the vision for what developer relations means at Skyflow, owning the strategy, metrics, planning, making sure that things actually get executed. And as for how that compares to being a developer advocate, well, developer advocacy is a role within developer relations. And their job is typically to be the face of a product to a developer community and essentially to the community they represent, the company they work for, and to the company they represent, the community. And since Skyflow is still you know, small, we're still growing the developer relations function, you know, I do a lot of the advocacy work myself, but I'm also currently hiring for this role. Now, within developer relations, there's other roles as well, and that can depend on the company. So like at Google, I manage both technical writers and developer relations engineers. And you can find product managers, program managers, software engineers, community managers, and a variety of other roles within a developer relations team. So let's say for example, so your role as a developer relations is to tell, let's say certain developer advocates on certain criterias or certain things to do when advocating for the company as, as this as an example. Yeah, so you know we're going to have a strategy based around what the goals, uh, hopefully align with what the the goals of the company. So, for example, for Skyflow, since we're still a relatively young company and we're bringing a new technology to market, you know, a, a big area of our focus is really just like showing up for developers and um, making them aware that of what a data privacy vault is, that this solution exists, that there are ways of solving. Uh, the challenges around data privacy and, and, and compliance and security through this technology. And so that uh, is a, a lot of our focus is around like building awareness. And there's different ways of doing that, you know, showing up and speaking at events, uh, you know, speaking on podcasts, running webinars, generating content. And what I do is figure out where do we want to be in, say, six months from now, and then work backwards. What are the different strategies that we can um, apply to get there based on sort of the KPIs or the metrics that we're targeting, and then break down each of those things based on the resources that we have available. What what can we actually execute on and can sort of create that roadmap of execution 
while still allowing some uh, you know freedom in there for uh, things that opportunistically come up or for you know new creative ideas. Oh, that's actually pretty cool. Uh, moving on to when you actually used to work at Google, you mm -hmm. worked as a staff developer relations engineer as a lead, which is leading an organization of engineering group focused on developing experience by leveraging several Google products, ranging from APIs and SDKs and several tools. Can you stand on top of that uh, on this role? And if there's like, let's say, a real life example of an existing product that we currently use that you've worked on. Yeah, so um, in a lot of ways, my job at Google is similar to what I do now. So I own the strategy and planning for the developer relations function within a product area at Google. And Google is such a massive organization. You know, there's 150,000 full-time employees. So every product area is really like a pretty big company. <laughs> um, if you just you know took it outside of Google, you're talking, you know, it could be three, four, or 500 people, depending on what the, the product is, or maybe even bigger. So I worked directly with other leads, the engineering and product leads and you know business development leads to plan and prioritize how my team was spending their time, making sure it was aligned with the overall program strategy, help and drive alignment for various initiatives. And I also worked a lot on uh, our developer experience. So I owned um, uh, developer experience from a product standpoint. So I did a lot of product work as, as well there. And then in terms of products, I started at Google on the Google Assistant team. So we worked on um, actions like Google, which is a way for building different voice applications on Google Assistant, similar to um, uh, skills on uh, Alexa, for example. And then we later, but then later I, I ended up um, building and establishing the business communications developer relations team. And we worked on a suite of business communication products. The biggest being some, a product called RCS Business Messaging, which allows businesses to essentially create rich conversational experiences over a carrier-based messaging channel, as well as a product called Business Messages that integrated chat directly into Google Search and Maps. So it was different um, API-based products that would allow um, businesses to create new, richer experiences for interacting with their customers. You've also worked as a developer advocate also before you became a staff developer relations. That's right? Yes, yeah. So when you when you become like a uh, as a developer advocate, do you advocate towards a specific Google product that you choose, or they tell you like this is the product that you're going to move towards? Let's say, for example, there's certain people who advocate towards, let's say, like GCP, or they choose they advocate towards like a specific thing. That uh, usually, let's say, for people who advocate. As an example, is the Google developer experts who like people in the community who've been working on a certain technology, let's say like Angular or Flutter, they would talk about this certain thing. Do you mm -hmm. get to choose the thing that you want to advocate towards or it's something that is predefined for you to, to talk about? So typically, um, I think it might work in a couple of different ways. So uh, like if you it, it, outside of uh, developer relations, if you're a software engineer, typically you're applying to like be a software engineer you pass the interviews and then there's like a placement period where different hiring managers that are hiring for that role you might have conversations with. And there's essentially like a, a, a fit process where you're trying to see which team's a good fit for you and they're trying to see if you're a good fit for them. So sometimes developer relations can work that way as well, where um, uh, for whatever reason, you know, someone passes the interviews, but maybe the original role that they applied to uh, ends up going somewhere else or that, uh, 
you know, hiring manager loses the headcount or something like that, then there'll be this fit process where they're meeting with different hiring managers on different teams and they're trying to figure out where the fit is. But typically the way people come in develop relations at Google, at least during my time there, was they're applying to work on a specific product. But that it might not end up being the product they work on just because, you know, headcount could change or something like that. And in terms of developer advocates at Google, they're actually now called developer relations engineers. So there used to be two engineering roles within developer relations at Google, developer advocates and developer program engineers. But a couple of years ago, they actually combined them into one role, uh, which is a DRE or developer relations engineer, which now I see you know popping up in other places as well. And the reason they did that was because there was so much an overlap between what developer advocates and developer program engineers actually do. It didn't really necessarily make sense to have two different independent roles. And then what someone actually does for a product in developer relations really depends on the product and also where, how big that product is or, um, you know, and what, what's the size of the community and, and things like that, because something like Google cloud is, is really massive. So you have a lot more specialization within Google cloud than maybe another product, like the products I worked on. So there's some people who spend most of their time just coding. They're working on SDKs, they're working on you know, sample applications, and there's other people that are focused on just making content. So they're doing videos and speaking events, writing blog posts. And for me, when I started uh, as a senior developer advocate, I was the only advocate on the, on the product that I worked on. So I basically did everything. I wrote all the client libraries across all the supported languages, wrote all the sample apps, created and hosted workshops, ran office hours, wrote content, met with high value companies, one on one, and put on special workshops for them, and it was a ton of fun. Like I, I had pretty much total autonomy to do whatever I thought made sense. So I, you know, I traveled a lot. I got to do a lot of really amazing things during that time. So when you say, wait a second. So you say that you wrote the SDKs that <laughs> you actually wrote the actual SDKs that's like open source to be used for this specific product. Yes, usually. Right. So usually you did the job of, let's say, for an example, if I'm working on product X. Usually the software developers who develop product X should develop the SDKs, but the developer relations did it. At Google, a lot of the SDK ownership is done by the developer relations teams because they typically understand or the, they're um, building on the product as a third-party developer experience is a lot more than internal engineering. So for example, you could be some an engineer at Google that works on like Android, but have never built an Android app. So you're not necessarily the best person to understand what an Android developer building Android apps uh, needs. And similarly, for people who are working on products at Google as software engineers, maybe they're even building the, the APIs and the internal infrastructure for the product. They're not the ones that are actively actually developing on the APIs against the APIs against real use cases. Um, so a lot of times that ends up falling on the developer relations team because they're a lot closer to the people that, um, to like what a third party uh, experiences with building on top of Google products. So they typically own the SDKs. That's not hundred percent the case, but a lot of times that's the situation. But this case is quite different from let's say open source projects. So let's say take Angular as an example. Does, mm. uh, does let something like Angular fits into this kind of position, like a developer relations decided or a developer advocate decided like, Hey, uh, this is how you do web development. This is how Google instruct to do it. They set up, let's say, an open source framework and a library for the developers to use it. 
or is it something let's say like someone in the community decided to develop something and a developer advocate saw that this has potential and they adopted it i think it can probably work in different ways and there's also it depends a lot on the type of product that you're working on so i think if you're working on um at google say you're working on uh, like angular or you're working on like a language or a language framework then like you know golang or something then then the types of things that you're going to be responsible for is probably going to be different than like my experiences uh, where I was working on uh, like a B2B a API that's going to be consumed by enterprise businesses. So the, and also serves like a consumer. We essentially had like three sort of users of our, our platform. There's the, the business that's integrating our APIs and then they have customers that they sell to. So it's like a B2B to B and then they have consumers essentially. So it's, it's much different than building um, you know, working on something like an Angular, like a, a uh, sorry, working on like a language framework. Okay, so let's recap on this. So your job when you were at Google as a developer advocate, you advocate on a certain product that Google would actually want to present to clients that solve a specific problem. And you wrote actually some of the SDKs, some use case examples, you showcased them at certain events. You said like, Hey, this uh, product that's provided by Google, uh, this is the SDK on how it works. You go to, let's say, on events, you promoted it through hackathons, people would start adopting them and all of that. The, after you actually advocated on this certain thing, do certain people go back to you to offer, let's say, a premium support from Google? or let's say like premium support on certain things. So let's say, for example, I'm a B2B business. I saw that this product that you talked about solves a certain issue at, uh, at the company that I currently work in, and I need premium support. Do Google actually offer like premium support of solution architects or certain developers to help them back, to back themselves up on this certain issue to use this certain SDKs, or there's a different criteria for this? No, there is. So I would say that's like very common within Google Cloud, where um, uh, you know developer relations team is not the ones that are doing that sort of more hands-on enterprise uh, like engagement, where they're like handhold like handholding an enterprise through an integration. That's going to be you know someone from like sales engineering or solution architect or partner engineering, where it's kind of like deeper level partner engagement. So typically, there's also partner developer relation teams at Google that do a little bit more of that. So they are more focused on uh, rather than like a one to many relationship, one to you know few, they might have sort of 10 clients they're directly interacting with and really handholding them through uh, an integration. And that can, you know, whether that falls on a partner developer relations team's responsibility or something like partner engineering or sales engineering depends on network structure um, and how they want to uh, separate sort of you know roles and responsibilities. But within cloud, that's very, very common. And what the developer relations teams within cloud are more focused on is sort of the bottom-up engagement. How do we uh, create momentum and inspire action from the long tail of, of, um, of developers, as well as create engagement and awareness at the enterprise level that leads to, you know, these kind of sales level engagements where it's, it's a, a you know, a deeper um, partnership where someone from Google is really handholding that enterprise through the integration. That's actually quite interesting. I'll shift to another type of uh, 
question, which is that you've worked at Google. And is there something that I, as an individual, should focus on when applying to Google? Or do they follow like a strict interview process similar to, let's say, like Amazon, where they have a technical interview, several technical uh, requirements that you need to fulfill, like a coding challenge, and then there's a solution architect kind of challenge. And then they go towards like a behavioral interview where they check how do you actually do certain actions when talking regularly on, on camera, on, on set. Does Google does something similar to this or do they have like a much more leaner interview process? It's, it's very similar. Uh, so it's evolved over time. Um, you know, I think like back in the early days of Google, people were doing like sometimes eight plus interviews. Uh, and then they, they, they finally looked at their own data and realized that it was very unlikely that the outcome was going to change for somebody after four interviews. So the Google interviews are, are kind of known for being hard, similar to like, I think, um, what you'd experience at Amazon or Facebook or any sort of the big like tech companies. So you do need to do a, a fair amount of prep to get ready for them. But typically what you're going to experience is four to five technical coding interviews and a behavioral interview. If, if you get to the on-site, uh, they're called Googliness, Googliness interviews, but they're behavioral interview essentially. And the, uh, so you would typically do a phone screening first, and that's going to be where you have like a shared document and you're dropped in uh, a problem and you need to code that uh, solution to that problem live. And it might, you know, they might increase in difficulty as you work through that problem. And then if you're applying to an engineering role within developer relations, it's similar, but you also have to give a 25 minute presentation. And then it'd be, and also be expected to be able to answer questions like explain this technical concept to me and you know now explain it to me like I'm not a technical person. So for developer relations engineering roles, there's a mix of testing people's ability to communicate, tell a story, but also have the technical engineering ability to back it up. So for, so it depends on each role you actually apply to the, the interview process first. So as a developer relations, you might ask much more uh, how to explain certain things. As a non-technical person, since you'll be much more talking with clients or people like developers, rather than being, let's say, like a software developer, since you're going to be working in a certain office, you're going to just be writing some certain code. Correct me if yeah. I'm wrong here. Yeah, I think so. If if you look at like the breakdown, say you have a, I don't know, like a, a 45 minute interview slot, and for a, a software engineer in your SWE role, you're going to spend probably 40 minutes of that on like a coding exercise. And there's probably going to be more focus and emphasis on getting like the absolute optimal solution. And then for developer relations in a 45 minutes, you might spend, you know, the first 15 minutes answering these questions that are more about how you communicate and how you, you know, can tell a story, um, how you can communicate to different types of people. And then you'll spend, you know, 25, 30 minutes on like a programming exercise. And there it's good if you can come up with the optimal solution, but there's also a lot of focus on how you communicate the code that you're writing. And then also how is that code presented? You know, like everything that's produced for code within developer relations is highly visible because generally it's open source. So lots of people are going to be able to see it. So in some ways, like there's a higher bar for the like semantics of what you're producing and less, maybe a little bit less focus on getting the absolutely optimal solution. Uh, you know, if you come up with an N squared versus N log N solution or something like that, that might be okay if 
the actual product that you produce, which is the code, is highly readable and very understandable. And you can explain it in a way that the interviewer understands well. But let's say, for example, if I've been writing code, open source code, and it caught someone's from Google's attention, and they mm -hmm. applied to me to tell me, hey, how about you actually apply at Google? Does this certain criteria do, do I have to do the exact same interview process? So, but since they've actually seen the code quality that I have performed, yes. do I have to go through the entire process all over again? Or do I get like a different interview process? So let's no, say for an example. Oh, sorry, uh, sorry to cut you off, but <laughs> I mean, it, it'll be the same. Uh, there might be, you know, like I think if you were coming in at a super senior level and, you know, maybe you had some like super, you were super high profile or something like that, maybe there's those like one off cases. I don't know of a single one, but that, that could be the case. But even for um, acquisitions that Google makes, so they're acquiring a company and the company's technology people from that company need to interview and go through this interview process. So they do technical interviews. Um, and Google, uh, even for, you know, a lot of roles that like, a, like a technical program manager for a product manager, there's also going to be technical interviews for those roles as well. It's less focused. Like you're not going to do four or five, but there's probably going to be some sort of coding exercise as part of that. And it's just, a lot to do with the history of, of the engineering culture that Google has built. So let's say even if Google acquired a certain company, the employees that from the acquired company also have to do the interview process? Yes, not necessarily all of them, but some subset of them. So it might be like, let's say you acquire, they acquired like a, a startup of like a hundred people, then they're probably going to give technical interviews to the senior engineering people. So like a director of engineering and maybe some of the other leadership of the engineering team. And then uh, they won't necessarily interview everyone, but if those people do well, then I think the probably the assumption that they make is that, well, they probably know enough to hire well as well. So we'll sort of um, uh, allow the other people to join as well based on how the leaders of that company perform. I didn't actually expect this kind of thing, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there might be, there might be different uh, cases, but that was my experience anyway. So after, let's say for example, you did the interview process, got everything went smoothly, I became a Google employee. What kind of benefits does an employee get there? Let's say from a starting point. I mean, there's lots of benefits. I think Google is pretty famous for a lot of their benefits, uh, you know, like especially like their free food and, you know, massages and different things like that. But I think the, the actual like biggest benefit from my perspective of like being there is that you're really surrounding yourself with a lot of really smart people. Uh, it's a, also a great place to learn best practices for being an engineer when it comes to things like code reviews and coding style and standards and optimization. There's always somebody that, you know, probably knows more than you that you can really learn from. And uh, uh, which is, is amazing. That was, you know, part of my motivation for wanting to join there. You're also, before actually joining into Google, you were also a founder and a CTO at a company called Proven, a company that mm -hmm. got acquired by another company called Upward.net. What are the struggles you faced as a founder? And what is the process of getting a company acquired? And why did you take the decision of, let's say, I want to exit out rather than just staying operated? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of challenges, uh, where to even begin, uh, you know, we didn't exactly have a smooth path to acquisition. 
Um, but I think probably our biggest struggle was really through our first re real year of operation. So I left uh, Stanford uh, as a postdoc student in January of 2010 to work on proven full time. And we had just raised um, close to $2 million or so in, in seed money. So what we'd originally raised money for was to disrupt and modernize blue collar temp staffing. So my, myself and my two co-founders, we all met at Stanford. One was in the MBA program there. One was at, from the design school. And then I was like the technical co-founder. And the three of us were interested in trying to build technology tools for an underserved market. So there's lots of technology tools built in the job market for white collar jobs, for tech jobs, but there's not a lot of technology uh, companies that are focused on building hiring tools and hiring products for, you know, blue collar uh, uh, labor or for, you know, restaurant workers and things like that. And there's this multi-billion dollar blue collar temp labor market in the US that essentially is based on like 1970s technology. So what ends up happening is they have these brick and mortar physical locations that, uh, you know, a carpenter or a plumber that works for these uh, temp labor companies shows up for and they kind of wait around there hoping they get a job. And then they, these are place these, um, uh, physical locations are like a dispatch center. So the, and, and a lot of the stuff that they're using is maybe a spreadsheet or it's like a Rolodex that they're going through. Someone calls them up and they say like, Hey, we need 10 plumbers for 10 days. Who do you got? And they're going through the Rolodex and they're just like, Oh yeah, I'll send, you know, Johnny and Steve and Mary and they'll be over tomorrow and stuff. So that's kind of like how this like huge industry runs on. Um, so we thought we could apply technology to this industry and um, create like these decentralized model and really disrupt what was going on there. But as we tried to scale that business, we ran into a lot of problems. It was just really hard business to scale. And additionally, I think, you know, we kind of sucked at being a staffing company. Like we built some really cool technology. I think we were good on the technology portion, but we were just like bad operators of the staffing company. So we started looking for ways to pivot where we could use our technology and the team that we had built on a different part of the job market. And however, it, it, you know, it took us too long to kind of get there. And we were burning up all, a lot of the capital that we had raised while doing this. And so the near the end of October of that same year, so only like 10 months later, myself and my two co-founders spent like an entire Sunday in a coffee shop in downtown San Francisco trying to figure out what we should do. We had tried to raise money. We didn't have a product or traction that like warranted raising more money. And we eventually came to the hard decision that day uh, that we'd have to lay everybody off. So we came in the next day and we essentially broke it to everyone. And that included one of my closest friends uh, that I had convinced to leave his job to join us. And that company that he worked for later had an exit where he would have made a bunch of money. And stuff. So I always felt you know, really bad about that. I did help him get a job at Google uh, and he was the, my best man at my wedding. So, you know, everything worked out, but it was pretty terrible at the time. And then we also laid off two friends of mine that I had recruited from Canada who were on day two of their job, of their job. They just moved to San Francisco from Canada. Um, so that was really, really hard as well. And then two weeks later, my co-founder from the design school decided that he had kind of lost heart for the project and didn't want to carry on. So he quit. And then we had gone down to just the three founders and we'd kept one person, one employee who was this key hire. It was like our first adult hire that we had recruited from a company called Open Table, and he was our VP of sales. And we kept him on because we were like, we're going to need this guy in order to uh, to be successful. And then we found out a couple of weeks later that 
he had been interviewing with other companies. So we, we couldn't really have that, you know, him on the payroll, taking up the amount of money that he was taking, uh, not being fully committed to it. So we let him go. And then immediately we drove over to my apartment, myself and my co-founder Pablo, and we rehired one of the engineers that we'd let go on day two of their job uh, uh, because he was sleeping on my couch at the time because he had nowhere else to live because he just moved to San Francisco. And essentially the three of us, Pablo, myself, and this engineer, Eric, that we had rehired, like rebooted the company, started doing the right things, launched a new product focused on restaurant hiring. And we were, we were getting traction, but we were also running out of money. So in summer of the next year, we were essentially, we, we had gone down to like half salaries and then we were running on no salaries for quite a while. And it was a really frustrating time because we finally felt like, hey, we have a product, we have a product market fit, it's growing, but we have no money. <laughs> so we're gonna, like, no one's gonna give us a chance to actually make this successful. But in sort of the 11th hour, Andreessen Horowitz, who's, you know, was like the hottest investor in the world at the time, came in to lead a new round of funding of a little over a million dollars to keep us going. And then, uh, and then we, you know, continued to operate the business for another uh, six years or so after that. So as for acquisition, you know, I had actually already moved on from the company when the acquisition happened. So after seven years of operating the company, we got it to a point where it was cash flow positive, and I was kind of ready for something new. And I felt like the company was in a good place for me to step away. And it was never going to be the rocket ship that you know we hoped it would be, but it was in a good place where it was self sufficient. And it was run, you know, running and operating. And I felt like it was a good time to kind of move on and, and try something new. And that's when I, I started working at Google and I stayed on as a consultant through that, through that year. And so my partner, uh, Pablo, did most of the acquisition work. I was involved with helping the technical team from the uh, company that acquired us understand like our code base and how some of the stuff uh, works and um, how the how the various services and backend services work, and how they could integrate it into their existing product, and then through the history of the company, uh, proven we had flirted with a few different acquisitions at different times. We even signed like a term sheet at one point to um, entertain an offer, but we'd always ended up walking away from these different deals for various reasons. Uh, generally, because at the time we were you know doing well as a company, so. You, it didn't feel like the right time to sell, it, even though maybe in retrospect, uh, that would have made sense. But at the time, we're like, well, things are working right now. So why why sell? Uh, we can build something big on our own. And that was kind of always like a driving force because we didn't really get into building this company initially with the idea that, hey, we're just going to like flip this thing, make a quick buck. We were in it you know, for the long haul to try to build something big. And it didn't end up working out, but that was always like our focus. It's such a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster <laughs> yes. ride. It's it's like imagine yourself. It's like one day I was like I'm working on the startup. It didn't work out, and then it's up to like three three to four people. We've decided to like pivot everything up. We we've made the company go back on its feet. But mm -hmm. but the thing is, is that not everyone sees this kind of story. What they see is like the end story. It's like oh, this company got acquired. Or this company is operating good. Nobody sees these kind of struggles. Where yeah. even that developer even have to sleep on a couch to mm -hmm. to sustain himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's always true. Like you see these companies that raise like monster rounds, or maybe they have a success story where they get acquired for a bunch of money, or they you know go public at some point, and you'll see these headlines like you know overnight success or whatever. And what you're you're actually not seeing is the eight to ten years of 
work that went into making that happen uh, that the founders went through and that a lot of the original employees went through and all the struggles and ups and downs that you're seeing like the Cliff Notes version of that. Uh, and uh, I think that's something important to keep in mind, especially for any founder that's out there that feels like, oh, wow, like I, I why can't I, you know, why isn't my company being as, as successful as this other person? And the reality is that other person probably went through similar struggles too. But what made you decide to stay? even though you reached a position that nothing's going to work out? Um, I don't know that, I, like, I think, you know, it took me a long time to, to get to a point where I felt like, okay, we're not, we're, we're several you know years away from being in a place where uh, even in the best case scenario where this is going to be successful. Cause I always felt like there was um, uh, more stuff that we could do, or we could draw, we could try to get traction and we were growing. Um, and I think, we, we actually had a product that could have been really successful. Like, I think what we ended up building is very similar to, um, in, in many ways, to like the company ZipRecruiter, which, you know, went public last year. So I think we we built a product that could have been in a space that could have been really successful. But by the time we sort of figured out what that needed to be, we had exhausted a lot of our financial resources, which made it harder to scale. Like the way we scaled it was really through SEO and content marketing. So I built like an entire... Uh, uh, marketing um, organization and uh, like uh, and built up like our SEO presence through like really no uh, no financial you know financial backing like we just did it sort of uh, grassroots like um, and, and doing a lot of grunt work to make that happen and I think if we had had additional money to kind of throw fuel on the fire to combine both our SEO efforts with like SEM efforts, we probably could have grew a lot more than we did. So I don't think we did necessarily things that like um, it, in terms of the product and where we got it to the the wrong things. It just took us longer to get there than uh, was optimal. And, and even looking at some of the missteps that we made in terms of like product direction that we, we invested in and ended up not being um, uh, as good an idea as it originally looked like. When you look back at like well, the reasons why we made those decisions, it, they made sense at the time. I don't think they were wrong bets. I think our biggest mistake was really through that first year when we didn't really, we weren't really in a position to scale, and we did, uh, we hired too quickly. And then when we got to a place where we realized we couldn't scale the business, we should have immediately probably laid people off and went back to founders and tried to figure out what we were going to do instead of trying to hold on to these like people we felt were like great hires and figure it out at some time because we just burned up so much capital during that time to, to try to make that happen. When we're talking about scalability, you're talking about like physical scalability, not actually just, just technical scalability, or it's just yeah, both sides. I'm th talking about, I, I think I was referencing scale in terms of uh, uh, like reaching customers. Oh, it's more like the business and uh, the business aspect, or let's say that it's on the financial part of scaling. Right. Yeah. You mean yes. not, not the technical part, but when starting a company, what are the kind of like struggles you did that you got into when starting a company as a CTO? What's the advice that you actually give to people who starting out a company to avoid, or to let's say take into consideration of the things that might affect later on in the future? So there are certain CTOs that might do a certain decision that they think that it's right at the current time, but mm -hmm. later on, it might not be the right thing that they should yeah. have done in the beginning. So what are the things that you kind of recommend? 
Um, so I think there's like two really important things uh, in it. And we got there eventually. It just took us a little while to get there. But I think one of the really important things, and I think this, you know, I think it was Reed Hoffman that said this, but he said that no product ever survives its first encounter with real users. Or the, uh, you know, more famous quote is by Mike Tyson, which is that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And what this means is that uh, you need to really talk to customers. You need to prototype, get feedback and iterate and do that as early as possible before you build a single thing. And that's really what allowed us to get to a place where we had a product that was growing was we essentially threw out everything that we had and we just went, we went out and we took any like potential customer meeting that, of people that would talk to us. And we would just talk to them about like, how do you hire? You know, what's this look like? And we get them to show us our workspace and their process. And then we go and we build like a, you know, quick prototype that might be just on paper or, you know, some sort of box or something. And we bring that back and we'd be like, you know, what do you think of this? And we kept iterating like that. And eventually we got to a place where we had a product that they actually pay for. So you really need to focus on this during uh, trying to figure out product market fit and build that initial MVP. And then I think it has to be incorporated into your process and your culture for the long term as well. And this was something that I think really attracted me actually to joining uh, Skyflow because Skyflow does a lot of this. It really, I think, speaks to the experience of the product leadership team. You know, they're obsessed with talking to customers and lots of companies say that they are obsessed with talking to customers, but they don't actually end up doing it. But at Skyflow, you see a product manager essentially on every customer call. A lot of times it's our CPO or, C or even our CEO on those calls. And they want to be in the direct line of feedback, not having that feedback filtered through other people. And then the other big thing besides actually, you know, testing and iterating with real potential customers is, is focus. You know, there's a million good ideas at a startup and you really need to figure out which two or three makes the most sense to spend your time on. It's easy to get distracted. Like you might see some shiny penny off in the distance that you want to chase after. And then, you know, a, a beautiful butterfly comes by the next day and you're like, oh, we should, you know, do that thing. And that's how you get thrashing and you just don't make any progress at all. And, I, you know, I struggle with this as myself from time to time. Um, you know, I, I always want to be someone who's saying like, you know, yes, we should, you know, try that. Or yes, we want to do that thing. But as a leader of a company or a function, it's also your job to make sure that everyone stays focused and on what is essentially going to be most impactful. So I'm going to shift towards something that's quite different right now, that before actually you went as a CTO, you were also a postdoc researcher at Stanford. And this is something very weird that I'm going to ask is, what made you shift from academia to developing your own company? But before we actually get into why you shifted towards to a different company, what made you go towards academia in the first place? Like, why would this kind of like field attracts you in the first place? Yeah, so I wanted to be a professor or, or you know, maybe a professional researcher because I really like teaching. Uh, I liked working with students and I liked getting people excited about computer science, getting them excited about things that I was excited about. And I thought that if I could you know, articulate that message to people in the right way, then they would see um, the world that, you know, maybe the way that I did and, and be as excited about it. And I always felt like, you know, when I was in school and as an undergrad, a lot of my, the students were, I think, they, they got discouraged or they didn't like what they were doing. And I f felt like in some ways they were kind of, you know, focused on the wrong things. They were focused on 
you know, doing the grunt work of classwork, but there's this whole exciting world of like technology and computer science that they, if you, I felt like if you just exposed them to those things, then they would be equally excited about it. And then in terms of research, I thought that it would give me the freedom to kind of work on whatever I was interested in. And I always had a, a you know, a variety of different interests. Like if you look at even my academic or like my, my uh, career, like studying, so I did my undergrad in theory and computation. So it was very much on, focused on theoretical computer science and the math, you know, a lot of the mathematics and algorithms behind uh, principles in computer science. And then my master's was in you know, machine learning and AI. And then my PhD I did in uh, human computer interaction and software engineering. So much more sort of on the social sciences side of uh, computer science. And then my postdoc was in you know, bioinformatics. So I kind of went across this huge spectrum and I have published works in, um, you know, bioinformatics, semantic web, algorithms, data structures, math, and quantum computing. So I kind of was always interested in like, all these different things. And that was really what I was, uh, why I wanted to go down that path originally. But then you shifted from the academia world towards forming your own company. When, mm -hmm. when is the time you actually thought like, this is the time that I need to shift? It's like when you hit the plateau on the academic world and realize, okay, I've reached my limits on certain things. So I should like do something different, or I just like, I would rather just stick to the academia world because some people would just rather stick into the academia world because it's a safe job. Mm -hmm. They would just say, okay, pays bills. I have children I have to feed. I have, I have to support a roof on top of my head. And some of them be like, okay, screw it. I'm going to just go and form a company that would mm -hmm. made you choose this kind of like decision. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. One is I I think I you know, I even though I was interested in teaching and academics, I also have always I think been like a born entrepreneur. Uh you know, if you look back even like when I was a kid, I was always trying to like start, you know, different side hustles or companies and things like that. In high school I started my first sort of technology company which was like a hardware review site. And so I always liked um uh, the idea of like starting my own thing. And then I also, when I was at Stanford, <clears throat> even though it was a great place to really uh, like build a career in uh, research or as a professor, and it probably could have been a, um, you know, place that could have launched my career uh, at different universities. I didn't really feel like I was that connected to the work. Like I wasn't, I was successful with it. I enjoyed it while, while I was there, but I wasn't like jumping up Saturday morning to go and like do, do my research. And, but instead what I, I really enjoyed working on was, was products that people actually use and that help people. And even throughout my 10 years in university, I work continually sort of on the side as a software engineer, either part-time or sometimes with periods where I'd go and do that full-time. And the reason I, in part did that besides it helping fund uh, my, my, um, my various degrees, but it also kept me connected to what was going on in the world of engineering. And I was always nervous about becoming a professor or a researcher where I kind of lost my technical skills. You know, there's plenty of professors that I interacted with that would struggle to write hello world application because they've just been too far away from actually coding for, for you know, their career. So I was always kind of scared of that happening. And in many ways, like academics felt much more abstract and disconnected from what was actually going on with technology and moving to the Bay area, you're sort of like thrust into this world where 
there's so much technology and cool things going on. So I felt like I was like, uh, 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 you know, in some ways, like a, like a dinosaur, where I was like losing touch with what was going on in, in the in the real world. Um, so I ended up choosing to go back to industry and, and really be part of that growth and excitement that was going on in the tech space. It's actually quite like kind of interesting because some people would just like, oh, okay, I'll just like take the safe route and just stick with what I'm doing. Some people like do even take the safe route and sticking in the job that they're currently in. They don't even shift towards different things. But mm -hmm. you've fairly jumped between different things also as a software developer, where you said you tried to do your own thing, uh, where you developed, tried to develop certain like companies and developed certain products to fit into that. So as a software developer that you've developed so many things, what are the things that you would recommend for people getting into software development? Like the kind of advice you would give for someone starting out that you wished someone would actually give it to you. So when you were like a professor, you said that you always wanted to teach computer science and motivate people into getting into the technical world. You would basically give them the kind of advice you wished someone actually give it to you. What What are these advice that you wish to get into? Yeah, I think, especially if you want a career as a, like a software developer, then one of the biggest things that you need to do is just spend as much time like actually programming as you can. And you know, I think when we're in school, you know, you're doing an undergrad in computer science or computer engineering or whatever it is, it's very easy to have that become your whole world and what you're focused on. And you're really only programming the things that you're assigned in class. And the downside of that is, you know, that might not be that interesting to you. And then it might actually create a situation where you feel kind of like negative about the type of work that you're doing because you're just doing these things for essentially to to appease uh, the assignment that you're given. And I think you need to find some sort of project or outsource or, or resource where you're you're actually excited to work on it. You know, maybe that's a game that you want to develop or, you know, whatever your interests are. So it doesn't really matter exactly what that thing is, but there's no better way to kind of learn than struggling to try to make things work on a project that you actually care about. And there's also so many resources online now that you can learn and get better. You know, when I was a kid, those resources just didn't exist. It was early days of the internet. Essentially you had to like dial in the bulletin boards <laughs> and, or maybe some obscure website to, to learn how to code or you had to buy a book and, and work through it. Now there's, you know, a lot more interactive and fun ways to learn. And then through my career, um, you know, I feel like university, even though a lot of the things that you learn like in a coding assignment aren't necessarily directly applicable to the sort of day-to-day -day life of, a, of an engineer, they gave me a very solid theoretical foundation. And, but I built a lot of my practical software engineering skill, skills through side projects. And also I did a co-op program in my undergrad. So instead of a four-year undergrad, I had a five-year where I spent about a year working at different companies. And that really gave me a lot of hands-on experience for like what working in the industry would look like. And then I built my skills for knowing sort of programming languages inside and out, plus data structures and how to apply different algorithms through competitive programming. So as an undergrad, I spent, when I was doing competitive programming, like 15 to 20 hours a week, just working on programming problems to get ready for these different com competitions. And just the sheer volume of coding that I was doing made me much, much better. And then also because I was doing so much coding on stuff that was, you know, harder than what was actually going on in my classes. When I got class assignments, it just didn't seem like a big deal 
for the type of programming I was doing in those because I, I, you know, I was already spending so much time programming that those things kind of seem like uh, very easy in in comparison. I kind of like kind of relate to this um, when I started out actually. When I, I actually started getting into computers when I was like six, do you know like PC logo? You know like this kind of like turtle of electricity just going on from my side. Do you know this uh, PC logo, the turtle that you write a couple of commands to and it moves forward? Uh-huh. You, you, I started getting into programming when I was like six years old. It's like the old equivalents of Scratch where mm -hmm. people actually get, kids get into it. Got into competitive programming when I was 14 actually. And I entered several competitions. And at 17, actually, I started getting professionally into the into the field. I started like developing websites. I even skipped days of university to go mm -hmm. into. I, I went into hackathons. I skipped university days to actually go into hackathons. I won competitions, and <laughs> I flunked like two years of my college degree. Actually, yeah. uh, two years of college, I actually flunked them to to pursue my dev career. Mm -hmm. I switched to another university. I funded my entire university out of programming. I've worked with several companies and startups, and I even mm -hmm. got out of it debt-free without even accumulating any kind of debt. So I kind of relate into this. One of the things I realized is it's about like writing code. It's just like keep continuously like writing code all the time, whether yeah. it's yeah. mostly just think, like side projects. Yeah, like if you think about like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about like the 10,000 hours that you need to expose to become like an expert on something. I think that's like a lot of what it comes down to is just, you just need that exposure. Like it doesn't matter what you're doing. Like even if it's, you know, some project that nobody is going to care about, but you, it, it, you know, as long as you care about it and you're learning something, like you just keep do doing it and that's going to pay dividends in the long run. And I think you need to kind of try to figure out how to merit, like combine something that you're interested in or you're passionate about with, uh, with, with programming. So if you can figure out a way to like combine a hobby with something technical, then that's like a great place to be when, um, you know, on my, I've been blogging for, you know, a long time, uh, 15 plus years about various, uh, you know, th things that I'm interested in. And one of the things that I've done is, uh, and some of my most popular blog posts are taking things from pop culture and then applying different, um, things from computer science. So like I've used machine learning to, um, predict the winner of, of the American uh, TV show survivor, for example, or, uh, analyze transcripts from podcasts to, uh, do various things, um, or, you know, apply data science and, and statistics to different TV shows to kind of, uh, pull out themes and, and interesting things from them. And those types of, that I, I'm really interested in that because I'm interested in, you know, like the, the pop culture subject that I'm investigating. And it's a great way to sort of explore these kind of abstract concepts that um, like, or these concepts that might seem really abstract when you're learning them in school, but then if you can apply them to something you actually care about, it, it really reinforces that learning process. But don't you like get the fear of getting criticized or certain like some people they are afraid of getting criticized or they face like some sort of like imposter syndrome to the point that they reach the position they just don't want to write code anymore some of them even reach the position that they write so much code that they burn themselves too much to the point that they can't even write any code anymore mm -hmm. have you ever faced like this kind of thing where you faced let's say like a certain burnout or imposter syndrome decided one day okay i'm gonna take a hiatus out of this i'm gonna take a break and feel like, okay, 
maybe today is not the day that I'm going to write code, even though it's beneficial for me to sharpen the saw, for mm-hmm. example, or acquiring this 10,000 hours on your belt to consider yourself you're, you're good at something. But there are certain days where you don't feel like this is your day, mm-hmm. where you feel like you've either overexhausted yourself or you, you fear certain people might criticize you in a certain way, so you end up not doing it that much. Mm-hmm. Have you ever faced something similar to that? Um, so certainly, you know, there were certainly times during my startup that I felt pretty burned out. You know, it's a, it was uh, a lot of highs and lows and uh, very stressful at times. And I think one of the things that's always helped me personally anyway, and I don't know if it'll help, you know, everyone, but uh, probably having some sort of outlet outside of work. But for me, that's exercising. Like I was involved in sports through most of my childhood and then I got into martial arts in, in when I was doing my undergrad and then later running and, and weight training and gymnastics. So just having an hour or so of each day that I set aside to sort of focus on something that's purely physical, that is too intense for me to be like thinking all the time about whatever technical you know problem I'm trying to solve really helps me decompress. And I make this a priority even when I'm stressed or have a million things to do or tired because I have, I have young children. And I just make it happen. I carve out that time. And I think without that, I wouldn't be as effective at my job or as a husband or a father. And then I think the other thing that is important for people to think about is, especially if they're starting to feel burned out, is especially if it's for their job, is take a hard look at what you're doing and think about what brings you personal satisfaction. You know, I faced this really in my last couple of years at Google. I love the team I had built and I and the people I worked with, but I felt kind of burned out on the day-to-day work itself. I was climbing the ladder at Google. There's a lot of benefits to that, you know, from a financial and prestige and, and so on, but I didn't feel personally satisfied by that work. And when I kind of looked at my future there, I didn't think that, you know, reaching a level of director at Google was going to be something that I would be super happy about in the long run. So I ended up making a change and that's why, you know, part of the motivation for me joining Skyflow and it really gave me new energy. And I think one important thing for people to remember that are in tech is that we're in a very fortunate position where there's tons of jobs and tons of opportunities where we are you know, well-paid and not everyone has that. And so if you're not happy in sort of your current setup, like, don't waste your time. Like, there's a million opportunities, amazing companies out there. You have options. So I think you don't feel locked into the situation that you're in. You start to explore or have a conversations outside. And regarding imposter syndrome, I I don't know that I've ever personally felt that, um, but I certainly have empathy for people that do. And I've had you know reports on my teams that have felt that way at different points. But I think it, it's important to not spend time comparing yourself to others. Like that just never seems productive to me. I think instead you need to focus on what, where you can bring value and what brings you personal satisfaction. And if you can combine personal satisfaction, passion, and value in a career, you'll be successful and likely happy with the outcome. Usually those kind of people, when they face with imposter syndrome, they it's kind of quite hard to just let them focus on a certain thing because they might be dealing with other things as well on a psychological level that clouds their head into to, to mm-hmm. focus on a certain thing. Mm-hmm. 
So usually some people would they start to face with imposter syndrome, they would have like some sort of like depression on the side that they haven't dealt with. They reach the position that the imposter syndrome feeds the depression that they currently have. They reach the position that their head is so clouded that they can't focus on the certain this small thing that even that they have to do at a certain level. Do certain companies, let's say you've worked in, take this into consideration about mental health at a certain level? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things um, that Google does really well. And one of the benefits of working there is they have a lot of resources available for people that might be struggling with various mental health issues, and that's all supplemented. And they'll, you know, you can be set up with a therapist that you meet on, a, you know, a regular basis. Um, it's it's all between you and the therapist. Nothing's communicated to the company or to your manager or anything like that. And I think that's, I think that's like a great resource. And I certainly, you know, I think it's hard to take that step, especially if you're in a place where you feel depressed and you don't feel like, um, you know, things are going to work out, but hopefully if you're a manager of someone who's going through, uh, you know, you have a report that's going through the struggles or you have a friend that's going through the struggles that you encourage them to, um, to seek one of these resources. Cause I think they can be highly valuable. Uh, You know, I myself have used, uh, therapy through, um, you know, in my personal life when I've gone through certain things that I didn't feel um, capable of coping with on my own. And it's nothing to, you know, feel embarrassed about. Uh, everyone needs help at different times, just like we we get physical help from, uh, you know, maybe a doctor or a medical professional. There's lots of times when we need uh, mental health help as well. And having somebody that is professional that can help you through that is super, super valuable.